Welcome to The Marketect, a podcast series where leadership and product marketing intersect. The Marketect is for and about the world's best product marketing leaders and the chief marketing officers that own the function. Today, we're going to cover the trends that are affecting the priorities of our fellow product marketing leaders this year. And now it's my pleasure to introduce you to Amy Hayes, Vice President of Forrester's Portfolio Marketing Practice and the lovely friend of product marketer, editor-in-chief of product marketing uh, community, Megan Ewer from Winning by Design. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks, Rowan. Great to be here. And, and I'm delighted that you're both here. Um, you both attack your role from a research perspective, from a data perspective. You speak to product marketing leaders and chief marketing officers all the time. And as such, who better to speak to, to understand the priorities of product marketing leaders in 2022 than Amy and Meg. But before we get into the trends, indulge me for a moment. I have two sentences that I'd like each of you to complete. And let's start with Amy. I am in marketing because. Ah, uh, let's see. I am in marketing because I like to figure out the right story to tell an audience. Ah, storyteller. I love yes. it. Yes. Meg, I am in marketing because. I'm in marketing because it seemed like the logical thing to do with an English major. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm in marketing because to me, it's the perfect blend of um, math problem and personality test. And when you apply those two things, you can solve just about any problem you have. Oh my God, I absolutely love that. A blend of math and, uh, math and personality, uh, brilliant. Last fill in the blanks. Amy, we'll start with you again. My definition of leadership is? My definition of leadership is translating strategy from the executive team and enabling my team to reach their full potential. Oh, brilliant. Meg, your definition of leadership is? My definition of leadership is a combination of vision and empathy. Ooh, mm. Vision and empathy. Uh, and, and, in, and in these days, uh, coming out of a pandemic, uh, hopefully I can say we're coming out of the pandemic, um, empathy is, um, is, is top of the list uh, for, for everyone in, uh, in all walks of life. So I, I absolutely love that. All right, now let's get to it. So year by year, the growing prevalence of more complex buying scenarios marked by larger buying groups. It's resulted in buyers seeking information in more places and thus resulting in more deciding journey interactions. So with that in mind, how can product marketing teams help their companies effectively engage with buyers along all these deciding journey interactions? So I'll take that one, Rowan. And you know, to, to add to your intro on that, we did a 2021 buying study of B2B buyers across geographies, across different industries. And what we found was that the number of meaningful interactions on average for a buyer increased from 17 in 2019 to 27 in wow. 2021. So you can imagine what that 
implica what the implication is for marketers who are now having to think about designing and, and understanding what those new interaction points are in the buying journey. And furthermore, what kind of questions and information are those buyers seeking as the buying journey is becoming much more complex. Now, take that at the same time that we know that the number of buyers in the average B2B buying cycle has increased. So I think if I have my, my figures correct, um, there were in 2017, 47%, about half of B2B purchases had four or more people involved in them. So now you look at this past year in 2021, now more than 60% of B2B purchases are made with four or more people. So more interactions, more people to keep track of. And so that is creating you know, a real challenge for marketers. And so the first real kind of to crack the, the code and understanding how to manage all of this complexity is to think about who the members of your buying group are and being very specific about the audiences that you're targeting. So we can no longer afford to be generic in the work that we do, in the markets that we are targeting, in the people that we're trying to reach. So understanding the members of your buying group, who are those personas and furthermore, what role do they play? Because when you have four or more people in the buying group, you're going to have a lot more than just your decision maker involved. You're likely going to have a champion, somebody who's helping shepherd the vendor through the process. You're very likely going to have influencers that can hold sway. You are likely going to have users involved in some point in time, especially if you're talking about a renewal decision or an upsell decision. And so there are many other, so there are many roles that buyers are playing in that, in that buying decision process that you have to understand. The second part, second part to the answer is you have to understand where those buyers show up in the buying journey, because they're not all going to be present at every stage in every phase of the journey. So your job as a, as a product or portfolio marketer is to understand where those buyers interact and really to try to get some economies of scale is to figure out where do you have multiple buyers engaging at a single point in time in the buyer journey. And that's where you can start to really get efficient and effective with some of the interactions and the content that you're designing because you have a number of the roles within that buying group participating. So understand your audience and then design the journeys for those audiences. And that is really the, the core to what we do as portfolio marketing. Love it. And, and just on that note, I mean, my God, so the number of interactions has gone up to 27 in 2021. The number of buyers, four plus per buying group. And, and each of those buyers uh, play a different role along the journey. So if an organization is looking to be audience-centric, personas should be mm -hmm. the cornerstone of any audience-centric um, uh, plan. And yet, according to a survey that you folks did in 2021, a revenue enablement uh, study, personas are the least requested enablement asset by sales and marketing teams, which baffles the mind. Yeah. Why is that? 
it is it was a surprise to us um, just considering how critical and essential they are for the entire go-to-market ecosystem. Um, and I, I think that there are a couple of issues at play when, when we dig into this. The first is designing and building personas that are actionable. I can't tell you how many times I have seen examples of personas that have interesting attributes, but, but really you can't do anything with it. For example, I've seen a persona that was, what's in this persona's backpack? Now that's fun and interesting, but what do you do with that information? So it's really critical to get the, the attributes right. And we really define them into, we kind of bucket them into four categories. We look at functional attributes that tells teams where to find, who it is and where to find them in the organization. Emotive attributes are things that really, what keeps this person up at night? What are their initiatives and their challenges? Then we also look at behavioral attributes, and that is really what we were just talking about, those interactions in the buying cycle. What do they like to consume? How do they like to interact? And then the fourth category are decision-making attributes. And those are really trying to capture how that buying group or how that particular persona makes decisions on behalf of their organization. And so every single attribute within one of those categories, there is a specific use um, for that, whether it's with messaging or whether it's with targeting or creating content, it really fuels so many of those downstream activities when you get these attributes correct. So that's part of the equation, but building personas by themselves is not the end state. We have to figure out how do we modularize these personas to make them useful for our internal stakeholders. So for instance, are you giving your sellers a 24 point or 24 page PowerPoint in 12 point font of everything that they could ever possibly know about a particular persona? Odds are that's gonna sit on the shelf and never get used. So what we really work with our clients is to understand what are the attributes that their stakeholders care most about and build them in a, in a modular way so the person can go get the right information that they're looking for at the right point in time, much like we think about with our customers or our buyers. So thinking about our internal stakeholders in much the same way. Meg, I'm going to turn to you just building off what uh, Amy said, you know, the number of interactions are up, number of buyers per group are up, where they're showing up in the journey, everyone plays a different role. Uh, so we need personas to make sense of them, but not just personas, we need uh, to design and build personas that are actionable, that, that have the, the four categories that uh, Amy spoke about, functional, emotive, behavior. For existing customers, who are a key part and should be a key part of our go-to-market strategy. I mean, there's this adrenaline rush when a company acquires, closes a new logo, but most companies forget that three quarters of B2B revenue comes from existing customers. And so we over-rotate, it seems, on whether it's product marketing, revenue marketing, we over-rotate on our efforts to acquire and, and don't pay as much attention to retention and expansion. So how should product marketing teams approach their efforts for new logos versus existing customers? And, and how can product marketing teams lead the effort to address existing customers? We don't forget about them because they are such a significant source of, uh, of revenue. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things I always like to remind people is every company is a recurring revenue business because you depend on the fact that even if you don't have traditional subscription revenue, even if you're not a SaaS business, you still need customers to stay with you, to buy more from you, to trust you when you come out with something new. And to lose sight of the importance of an existing customer is to basically make your engine super inefficient. You know, it's sort of like you've got, you know, the, the emergency brake on all the time. And that isn't how you want to, how does how you want your, uh, your revenue engine to run. Um, so first of all, shout out to the great work that, um, my friends at Forrester do on those buying studies. They are incredibly detailed. They are incredibly difficult to conduct and they are incredibly valuable. So some of what Amy just shared from, from that study is just gold. And, and for folks who've got a Forrester subscription, I really encourage you to have a look because it's great, great data and super useful. Um, that said, you know, Roan, you bring up a really important point, which is we focus on getting somebody to say yes for the first time in most of the work that we do for persona building, for journey building, and we really sort of let it die at the point of first purchase um, when really what you need is, okay, that's the beginning. That's literally the tip of the iceberg. But the next thing you need to start to do is say, then what happens next? And start to really understand that post-sale customer experience where you've got different people who matter and they take on two layers, right? One is for the ongoing sort of ownership and goal of achieving impact from whatever it is they've bought from you. So who's involved as an end user, who's involved as a manager of those end users, who's involved as um, a decision maker around them in terms of what they will or won't go forward with. How does it fit into the bigger picture of their workflow and their tech stack or whatever it is that you're selling? Um, understanding those day-to-day -day reality um, conditions is sort of a critical underpinning of being able to have a successful customer experience. Um, and what we don't want to do is say, well, we've sold it. Now we'll hand it over to our customer success team, our customer service team. If you happen to have account managers, they'll pick things up. Well, yes, but um, if we think about what's changed about a number of those interactions then, and the many of them that we have in the pre-sale world, a lot's changed about how we interact in the post-sale world too. Marketing can and should be playing a role there to maintain positive engagement with that customer over time and be part of that conversation. But the second piece is, and that's really saying, hey, how do I ensure that the, the customer gets what it is they've paid us for um, and that our our um, end users, whomever is the one sort of day-to-day -day interacting with your offering, understands and gets the most value and impact from that work. But the other layers to think about now, who's going to make a decision or what group of people, more to the point, are going to make a decision about whether we renew, about whether we expand, and are there additional buying centers that we could be getting into? So your classic cross-sell versus in the first case, it's just renewal and upsell. You need to understand the buying groups for each of those, the, di the decision-making dynamics, the situations that may be present in those businesses that would cause them to need something more or different from you, the pains that they may be experiencing. And you also want to understand, are there any critical events within those businesses that would cause them to have to make a decision sooner rather than later, that would cause them to need something different from you? And how and where can you pay attention to the changes, either in product usage, in online behavior, or or in what they're hearing and seeing, um, what you're hearing and seeing through customer success and customer service or account management, all of those people who are interacting day to day, you know, person to person with those people. And by understanding all of those dynamics and then looking for those critical moments in that journey where you have a window to understand based on either behavior or um, 
behavior observation or direct input what's happening and, and to to address that you have much greater potential to be able to tap into the recurring revenue to not lose those renewals to make sure that that customer is on track to get impact before you run into trouble so that isn't traditionally a role that product marketers have taken but it is it is increasingly a critical one for them to understand if they're going to tap into the biggest source of growth Brilliant. And Meg, are you seeing more and more uh, in your consults with Winning by Design, are you seeing more and more product marketing teams working hand in hand with customer success uh, after this, after the first purchase? I love that phrase, by the way. Uh, It's nicer than saying post sale. Uh, (laughs) Are you seeing more and more of this interlock between these two functions to drive that? Not as much as I'd like to see. I still think that customer success is considered a bit of an island and as if, oh, well, we'll just hand it over to customer success and they'll figure it out. Yes, they will. But if you've got 20 people on that team, you're going to have 25 different methods because no one's directing them to do it beyond sort of basic process. And there may be just like with your um, your sellers who are acquiring new um, new customers, there may be situations they run into all the time. There may be specific levers that they can be looking for in that relationship. There may be specific moments that you can tap into that they wouldn't flag on their own, but product marketing could help to define those personas in a way that lets them do that, define those journeys in a way that says, hey, at this point, this is a good moment to do some discovery around this particular situation. This product usage pattern typically means this is a window into getting to another buying group, whatever it might be. So I'd love to see more of that happen and some companies are doing it where you see some pockets of this being done probably most successfully are actually product-led growth companies because they are so carefully monitoring product usage behavior because that is their growth engine that they're tapping into that journey uh, a little bit more efficiently and a little bit more consistently than those who maybe aren't quite as close to saying, hey, how people use our product is our engine of growth, so we'd better pay attention. If you typically have signals coming from a bunch of different places, you're maybe not tapping into it as much, but that's an example of where I see a bit more of it. Lovely. So Amy spoke about the need to provide a facelift to our B2B buying personas, uh, especially keeping in mind the, the, the larger buying groups that are happening today, meeting the buyers where they are uh, and understanding how they're going through that journey. Uh, and, and you provided some light as it relates to after the first purchase, product marketing role is not done. It must continue. We must build a buying audience framework that includes post-sale opportunities, uh, and and also nuanced messaging for expansion, upsell, cross-sell, so on and so forth. I I absolutely love that. So now that we've covered the the pre-sale and the post-sale, aka after first purchase per Meg, there's a lot of insights that the organization is is capturing. And there's 7,000 plus MarTech, maybe 8,000, who knows? Uh, It was 7,000 when I checked a couple of months ago, MarTech and sales tech solutions out there. So revenue teams, we we can't complain about the lack of insight that is available to us. Product marketing teams especially can use the insight that's there to inform our competitive intelligence, win-loss analysis, better understanding of our customers. What advice, Meg, let's stay with you for a second here. What advice would you give to product marketing teams that complain that they don't own their own tools? Like how should they best glean the most information possible from MarTech sales tech solutions that are in place today? 
first of all, I'd say they should be saying, hallelujah, I'm so glad I don't have to own those tools because that takes a lot of work and effort to manage a tech stack within a complicated, you know, sort of revenue operations setting. Um, so I would say count yourself lucky if you're not the one responsible for it. Um, however, you should be accountable to maintaining visibility into what those various tools can tell you. And you should also be accountable for using data and reporting to prioritize your efforts. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that we do at Winning by Design is we put together what we call a data model, which basically looks at conversion rates through all stages of the customer lifecycle, from pre-sale all the way through first purchase, all the way through renewal, through expansion, through advocacy. So paying attention to every aspect of the journey. And you can break that down by the numbers. You can look at conversion rates. You can look at the volume of business that's flowing through there um, and understanding where you have breakdowns in that journey, where things aren't working as well as they should be, where customers are dropping out of that journey um, or where you're gaining more customers that you didn't expect, right? Paying attention to those numbers can help you to say, hey, I've got a very long list of different um, personas that I could be refreshing. I've got a long list of different buyer journeys that I could be documenting and supporting. I've got a long list of content that I could be creating or recommending. Um, how do I prioritize which to go after? Well, the data will show you where the need is greatest. So first of all, paying attention to understanding all of those conversion points and where you got issues, kind of where's their smoke so that you can go say, okay, what's causing the fire and how might I help? So that's one. And then the second thing is really paying attention to um, the categories of tools that allow you to have much more detailed visibility into the complete journey. Um, and I'll point in particular to um, things like conversational intelligence tools that allow you to really understand patterns of behavior through sales calls that really allow you to dig in and say which, which conversations are more or less successful and with what kinds of customers. So segmentation on top of conversational intelligence, um, as well as things like um, account-based platforms and intent data tools that allow you to understand what are, this, what are the behaviors that customers are literally demonstrating in the things that they respond to across that journey. And in fact, you know, you've got some platforms that really allow you to piece together that journey in, it does it automatically, right? You've got this beautiful picture of what happened, how you got to that win or how you didn't, right? If you didn't win or you didn't renew or you didn't expand, what happened? And using that to do some pattern recognition can help product marketers from becoming irrelevant because they're not really tapping into the specifics of what's actually happening in that journey and the signs that our buyers and our customers are showing us as they're going through that journey, even if they're not interacting directly with us. So all of those are kinds of categories of tools that you know we can really tap into. And, and by being very tuned into um, what's happening, not just in sales calls, but using conversational intelligence for things like customer success calls and customer service calls, what things are resonating, what things are really difficult. All of that allows the product marketer to have this essentially infinite feed of customer insights um, that then you can break into meaningful behaviors and meaningful actions and prioritize what you work on. Absolutely brilliant. So you're you're right. I mean, the conversational intelligence, intent intelligence, revenue intelligence, a lot of intelligent tools out there for us to prioritize our efforts and and uh, and glean where we should focus uh, focus our efforts. So thank you so much for that, Meg. Amy, I'm going to switch to you for the last question of the day before we do a lightning round. And I'm going to switch gears a little bit as it relates to team design. So how should product marketing leaders and or the CMOs that own the function build the product marketing team that will deliver results aligned to their 
business objectives in 2022? It's such a great question because product and portfolio marketing is probably the least standardized team within the marketing ecosystem. Sometimes it reports to marketing, sometimes it reports to product, even within the own team, your the own the team itself, there's not a real standard way in which responsibilities get divided like there might be with demand creation or reputational teams like the brand and comms team. So it's 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 so dependent on a number of inputs that really drive clarity in how a leader would would design the team. And some of those inputs are understanding the overall business strategy and the objectives. So as a as a company, are you really focusing it on innovation and those first time buys within a new market? Or are you really focused on market expansion um, within the you know, existing categories that you're serving today? That's one example. How does the marketing team and specifically how does the, the product or portfolio marketing team interact with other functions in the organization? That's another really key input. How do they interact with other marketers? How are they interacting with the product management team? Um, those are all key inputs into how you think about that. So as you get clarity, you really then think about the capabilities that your team holds today. And that is going to really show you where you might need to shore up capabilities and where you might build to where you have strengths today. And really three key dimensions are, are what we see best in class portfolio marketing teams think about. They use these three dimensions as they design their teams. And the first dimension is organizing around products or your offerings. And oftentimes this is, you know, as startup companies or, or hyper growth companies, they really think about the world from their, their, their product because they probably have a, a pretty um, basic portfolio of offerings that they're bringing to market. But as you evolve, as, as the organization um, gets more sophisticated, adds more capabilities, more offerings within its, its portfolio, then they need to start thinking about markets and buyers. And there is another dimension that you can organize around is by audience. So that is a way that, you know, we see a lot of industry teams, a lot of industry marketing teams obviously focused on, on an audience. But those are oftentimes in a separate part of the organization. Those are often not part of the portfolio or product marketing team. And then the third dimension to think about are the activities that happen. So content development, messaging, launch process. Those are some of the really big biggies in terms of activities where there might be dedicated teams focused on a particular activity. And each one of those dimensions has pros and cons. Um, we can go through in, a, in another conversation kind of the details, but um, but really, ultimately, the larger the organization, the more you are going to have the, the latitude and the flexibility to tap into all three types of dimensions. We will always, as product marketers, we will always be aligned to an offering or set of offerings. But it's the, the, the tricky part is when how do you layer in the expertise about markets and buyers into the work that you do? 
And that's really, I think, the, the fundamental value that portfolio marketing brings to their organization is their expertise on the markets and buyers. Yes, they need to be experts on the offerings, but really what's going to move the needle and to really engage that, that portfolio marketing team at the strategic level is those, the expertises, their expertise on markets and buyers. Amy, I, I love the discipline by which you answer that question because I get asked all the time, Rowan, how do I, within the product marketing community, CMOs ask all the time, how should I organize the product marketing team? How, you know, what are people telling you? And I provide the answer that everyone hates, which is it depends. And, and to your point, you have to start with the understanding of your particular organization's strategies uh, for the coming year, but, but also for the next three years. And then, as you mentioned, the the three dimensions of the audience that you serve and and that's either by function by by industries the offerings and products and your activities and, and you recommended you know looking at content messaging launch and there's others but I, I love the discipline by which you uh, you answered that and now for a quick lightning round and we'll call it a day uh, Meg let's start with you what do you wish product marketing teams would stop doing in 2022? I wish product marketing teams would think they always have to bring somebody in from the outside when you may have great people right inside your organization looking for a new opportunity who have knowledge of one or more of the things that Amy just talked through, but maybe haven't been as experienced with product marketing, who would love to learn the discipline, who would love to make that change and would make an amazing contribution. So start closer to home, start with your sellers, start with your sales enablement people, start with your um, you know people in other roles in marketing, start with subject matter experts within the organization and see if maybe there isn't some interest there. Love it. Be loyal to your own and, and give them an opportunity to stretch themselves. Thank you, Meg. Uh, Amy, what do you wish product marketing teams would stop doing in 2020? Yes, I love this question. I, I would like them to stop being generic with their audiences. So IT decision makers, not, just not specific enough. CIOs, that's better. But CIOs from software companies within Europe and the United States, that's even better. So that's just a very simple example of showing how to start to own your expertise on the markets and the buyers that you serve. Love it. So really get nitty gritty with those uh, audience strategies as well as building out those personas. Um, Amy, let's stay with you. How can product marketers be perceived as architects of growth, aka architects, for their company in 2022, and yet not a co another cost center? I feel like I'm going to be a broken record, but showing the value that they bring around what makes their audiences tick. That's going to be their North Star. And once they show and demonstrate their expertise, they are going to really start to elevate their ability to make an impact, a bigger impact on the organization and, and not continue to get pulled down into the mire of so much of the tactical work that we see portfolio and product marketers doing today. You have to prove your value. And that's one of the most 
um, incredible ways and opportunities that that we have is to prove our value on our expertise in markets and buyers. Bah, love it. Understand the voice of your customer segments, the voice of your ideal customer profile, even more granular, the voice of the four plus buying personas in uh, the buying groups that are prevalent uh, in 21, uh, 2022, sorry, and beyond. Thank you. And Meg, how can product marketers be perceived as market techs for their company in 2022? Uh, link yourselves to the areas of the business that will deliver the greatest impact to your growth. So goes back to a little bit of what I was saying about data earlier. If there are particular areas within your customer lifecycle that things are not going the way that the business hopes or that are really, really critical to reaching those growth targets, what is it that product marketing can prioritize and contribute to achieving those core objectives of the business and demonstrate the linkage between what you do and a positive outcome? If you really connect yourselves to the problems that the leaders of the business and in particular the revenue team see as essential to their growth during the year, you will not have to fight for any recognition at the end of it. With that, we're going to call it a wrap. Meg and Amy, thank you for lending the product marketing community your time. You truly both are two of the best at fueling Markitech's ambitions. And so I thank you for that. Keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Rowan and Amy. So great to connect again. You too. Much appreciated. 